0: You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gartner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Lorenzo Marini about the data project. Stay tuned. It's The data project, when I heard about that I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting because we talk about data all the time. And Lorenzo has a really interesting background on that and perspective on that. And I think he comes not from the clinical side, but from a very, very different angle and we can learn quite a lot from him, so stay tuned in for this episode. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, the community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video on demand content library, free registration for all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org and become a PSI member. Welcome to a new episode. And today I'm talking with Loris and he actually sits on the other side of the world for me. How are you doing? Good mate. Very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I actually do have some connections to Australia. I've worked with people in Australia for for some time uh, in my previous company, Lily, and that was always, always fun. And uh, currently, yeah, we have, you know, in the right time of the year where we are two hours closer together. (laughs) In winter, it's always a challenge. So, um, but we don't wanna talk about time zones. We wanna talk about your project. So let's start. But first, a little bit with an introduction of yourself. What, what's your career has been up to now?
1: Yeah, I um, so I've done a few different things. I've started from information engineering. That was, you know, graduate studies at the um, University of Tor Vergara in Rome, uh, where I essentially studied the engineering of transfer of information between systems. So uh, we looked at, Mostly they were radio waves based, so either laser based or uh, electromagnetic um, based. But the idea was, you know, you have a message you want to send. uh, What is the best way to send it across an arbitrary channel? Uh, It could be a a wire, it could be a wireless channel. So all of the mathematics and the theory to reason about that transfer of information and obviously start by defining what information is so that you can devise the best way to transfer it. So I I love that. It wasn't my first choice. I wanted to do aeronautics, but uh, with hindsight, if I could go back, I would do exactly the same because uh, that uh, exposed me a lot to statistics and to mathematics and all the abstract reasoning that is required for solving any problem. And (laughs) if you think about LinkedIn, Twitter, these are communication channels as well, there is a model for them. So being able to see, you know, systems based on their essence uh, is is really useful. At the the end of my uni, I joined DLR. I was actually in Germany, uh, in Munich for a small, for the end of a a large European project. I joined at the very last eight months. And it was about maximizing the information transfer in a satellite system uh, so you had this geostationary beast that was deployed, had been deployed many years back, and had a, a capability of, trans- of using many antennas at the same time, each one with a beam. And they didn't, they didn't want to replace the satellite because it was very expensive, but they wanted to find ways to improve the throughput, so send more without changing the hardware. And so my project was based on theory that had been developed for the last. Uh, 40 years, deriving all the way from Shannon and the theory of entropy, and make basically simulations to see whether the new systems we wanted to roll out were effective or not. Um, so that was kind of my my background. I then moved to Sydney for fun. I ended up uh, shaking cocktails at the Sydney Opera House for a year, That was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> was totally random then i then uh, found myself doing some machine learning at the university of sydney uh reinforcement learning and then one day i met this person uh italian as well which ended up being my phd advisor that said look i'm new i'm setting up a team we want to do quantum photonics and i'm like what <laughs> this sounds really exciting so let's let's go and have a look and that's how my, i found myself stuck in a lab uh, measuring single photons for four years. And then uh, I stumbled into data science. Ah, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of connection to to me,
0: actually. I lived most of my university time in Göttingen right across the DLR in, in Göttingen. And so, yeah, and was my minor was in physics. I was actually living nearly on the physics campus there that was, that was direct. So back. we can talk about eigenstates.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Interesting. Awesome. So, and now you have started this data project. Can you yeah. tell a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So that is the, one of the many projects that I think have been accelerated by the pandemic. I found myself with a lot of free time and, uh, a lot of frustration for how things are in the data space. I um, you know, when I when I was fresh from uni, fresh from my PhD, I joined the smart tech company and it was fun because I was treated like a, literally a ninja. I posted this a few, a few days ago on LinkedIn and it was very ego pumping, you know, that I saw this guy, you know, fresh from PhD, super approachable, that wants to have fun, that knows about data, right? And uh, the expectations were up uh, through the sky. And the reality of the availability of information within the organization was completely different. And so I found myself as a first data hire, tried to explain why I needed some systems and why architecture was important for me to do my job. Just, you know, give me give me data that I can analyze. And the answer mm-hmm. most often was, oh yeah, we got the Elasticsearch search in- instance, maybe we can clone it and we can uh, give you access to that. And I'm like, yeah, but the Elasticsearch is one of like three or four that I need, and there is no plan here to bring all this data together. Mm-hmm. And I really need all that data together because for the stuff we wanted to do, we needed to know, we needed to correlate metadata, the log system from the app with um, data that came from other system software as a service that we were using to identify, classify, cluster, all the fun stuff you want to do. Um, and so I couldn't do it. And I ended up uh, building ad hoc systems and wasting a hell of a lot of time doing manual one-off tasks that didn't fit into a vision, didn't, were just isolated sort of heroic efforts instead of being part of a strategy. And so that meant that a lot, things were slower, you had to do a lot of convincing while building, and it's really hard because you either convince or you build. <laughs> yes, yes. Right, and, and so that was very interesting though, because I learned a lot. Um, then I moved to Sandal when I was looking at the architecture. So different story, they had a data team there with analysts. And I came in as a data engineer to migrate what they had been using for three, four years into new systems that could scale. You know, so we'll leverage systems like cloud native platforms like Snowflake and you know the ETL as a service like FiveTran or Stitch Data. So basically trying Mm -hmm. to trying to use the work that other companies have been doing to avoid reinventing the wheel and focusing on what really was valuable for the business. Then COVID hit, and um, I, lo- I found myself with heaps of time and I thought, what the hell? You know, Those conversations we had over, over a beer after work were really valuable. That was really the thrill of the job, not so much the doing. It was talking to people, extracting them, the understanding how they understood the business. And I was like, I'm going to make a podcast. Sounds crazy. But I just want to give it a shot. I just want to see if this can turn into something more than a hobby. And a couple of months later, I said, uh, maybe I should decide straight on whether this is a hobby or not. And so I decided to f- establish data foundations. So I registered the company in September last year, uh, launched the podcast, and pretty much in the last six months, I've been head down <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to to let the project start and then go over the initial phase that everybody, you know, the scary part of, Oh my God, is this, is it going to die? Is it going to pod fade in three episodes? Yeah. But the, the idea of the data project is to bridge the gap between the business and, and data practitioners, which is I think the fundamental problem that's holding back a lot of data people. Um, so as part of that project is trying to change the way we speak about data and also who we speak to, so the language, the narrative, but also the frequency, and mm-hmm. it starts with an introspection, but it expands as, you know, a, a new learning, a relearning the, all the the ways we uh, we speak. Data is actually a very
0: interesting word because who you speak to, it has very, very different meanings. So for example, when I speak to an end user, yeah, A physician, a scientist, someone in marketing. They understand data as the (laughs) results that is in a table or the results that you publish in a manuscript. Yes, that's their data. Yeah. The figure, that's data for them. Whereas we think very often in data in terms of okay, you have the you know individual. Level data and you know lots of different um, data sets and you need to merge them together and yeah, so they may be scattered in different places and so data for I think for a data scientist has more kind of this
1: raw form of, of things. Do you see that as well? Absolutely. Um, and so this is the the stereotypical iceberg, right? Like you see the tip emerges from the water level, and if you are not a practitioner, you don't see what's underneath the surface because you never had to put your head under the water. It's totally reasonable. And it's also an advantage if we really think okay. about, and I, I always make a parallel with the evolutionary path that our brains took some points in the past when we started to abstract complex problems and create models in our, in our mind, in our brain, for how the world works. It's an advantage because if everybody was to, if every time you need a piece of information, you need to take that deep into the water and see the whole iceberg, you'll freak out, never come out, and uh, things don't happen. So it's good that we can only see the tip. But the other side of the coin is that when people don't understand that it's only a small percentage of the whole picture, we end up with a lot of frustration because they don't understand why is this is so complicated. Why are you just give me that give me the bloody data? Like I just need to make a decision. Why isn't why isn't it ready? And you try to explain, well, it's because there's so many moving parts and this governance and this privacy and this reliability and this yeah. So yeah. I think we need to do a better job as data practitioners to explain to normal users normal data users what's involved
0: yeah i see that very often kind of people see you know the the role of a statistician as a click the button exercise yeah so so, um uh, just give me these proportions it can't be that hard to to tell me how many patients had you know this pre-treatment and and then that study and you think like well first We haven't captured the data in exactly the way you wanted, yeah? You know, we need to kind of wriggle up these all these details and see the more exact details. Do you mean kind of whether they actually started the the therapy at this time or that time, or whether they needed to be still on therapy, or, you know, and did they have, were they allowed to have another therapy on top or not? And so wh- whenever you go into the details, you always find, oh, there's these all these other little things that you haven't thought about before. Do you see that in the same way?
1: 100%. And I think as statisticians, we have one extra challenge compared to people that tend to do more visualization work. Because you know when you build a plot or a dashboard, you can see it is tangible. You, it, we we get it right we intuitively look at a dashboard and we understand what the data practitioner is trying to say most of the time some dash, dashboards are garbage but most dashboards are okay so we, we see that and we see we appreciate when someone goes like, well, are you colorblind or not? We need to worry about this for the perception side or mm. so these things are easy to grasp. but when you're talking about statistics, that's a totally different story because, you know, people like Daniel Kahneman in his book, uh, thinking fast and slow, but many other people have done similar studies and we know that scientifically the average human being doesn't get statistics, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we know that for a fact we have, we, we don't have the brain, the brain hasn't evolved to understand statistics. Unless you have the mathematical formalism, the formal training, I remember banging against the exam at uni. Stati- th- uh, theory of uh, uh, random processes. I think the translation from Italian, "Teoria dei fenomeni yeah. aleatori." In year two, you had a first exam, six months, and year four of engineering, the second exam, same professor. It was it was such a big exam. I remember. My mom still remembers me screaming, waking up after the exam when I passed it, and the first thing I experienced I was like, I did it! You know? So it takes, it's a lot of effort, it's like a big, big you know, mountain, to move to move it, and to get that ball rolling, and start thinking like a statistician, you need to do a lot of effort, so I think we shouldn't be surprised as data practitioners that people don't get it. We should assume that and uh, do something about it, which is the hard part. Uh, I remember, I don't know yeah. if we have time, but there's a story that I like to tell, which is the yeah. we we're, were building this recommendation system, which really was just a ranking, basic ranking algorithm um, for email campaign performance. You know, you send 100 different click-through rates, different uh, open rates, and we wanted to know what are the top three performance, what are the three worst campaigns. So what I did, I built a very simple system that would infer the probability density function of the observable. <laughs> so I was basically just looking at a campaign and, and saying, you know, this one it's open this many times, and then building a histogram from the histogram extracting the the probability density function which people in the audience will know what it is but it's really a fingerprint it tells you what the distribution looks like and so once you know that you can say oh you are you know the 95th percentile you are in the fifth percentile yep. just explaining this but not you, you don't get a, a hundred percent it's there's always an, esti- an estimate confidence interval uh, <laughs> So I remember talking to the CTO, trying to explain the confidence interval. And he he asked me, is it good or is it bad, this particular campaign? I'm like, it's good with, you know, 87% confidence. And so he looked at me, he's like, so it's good. Yes, it's good with 87% confidence. (laughs) So is is it good or is it bad? I'm like, well, it's good. With that, you know, <laughs> I can't. You can't just cut the sentence there. You get for, for it to have a meaning, you need to you need to bring the initial part of the sentence and the trailing part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I yeah, was yeah. very fixated on that. He just wanted to know is it a good or is it bad. So that's an example that I keep in mind to every time I he- I talk to somebody in an executive position to try not to think like an academic because it gets in the way.
0: Yeah, I see that in my world also quite a lot. Yeah, you want to be precise. You are trained to be very precise in how you speak. But that's not how usual, you know, non-statisticians talk. Yeah, when we speak about probability, we have a very, very kind of formalistic thinking about it. And that allows us that all the statisticians around the world have the same understanding. Yeah. Because we all have you know, the same theory behind it. We all have you know, read similar books about it, definitions about it. But you know, when you talk to a non statistician, well for them, maybe they know about probability in terms of oh, if I roll the dice and you know there's one out of six that I get a six. That's maybe about it. Yeah. And so understanding okay, how likely is something? And then you know, if you think about oh you have this you now you're having kind of the probability and then you have an uncertainty around this probability. Then people
1: completely kind of stop. They lose it. They're like, What do you mean yeah. uncertainty? <laughs> I'm paying I'm paying you for your job, are you not sure? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. then you can say well I'm that certainly sure and th- you know this we could also talk about some model based uncertainty on top of that but then it's, oh, yeah, lost. it explodes <laughs> yeah they're like okay I need a beer you keep doing your job yeah. we'll see you tomorrow <laughs> yeah. okay let's, let's go back to this data project yeah you talk a lot about data management. What's data management for you? Because that's another kind of term that has lots of different meanings.
1: Yeah. So I see data management as the set of processes, technology, and programs to manage information as an asset. Mm -hmm. So it's what you have to do to be able to rely on a piece of data or on on an insight. Um, so it involves the architecture, it involves the engineering, it involves the governance aspect as well. And so it's very broad. But the essence is the set of practices that allow you to rely on uh, the digital intangible asset as opposed to just bang together to Excel sheet and hope for the best. Mm. Okay, okay. So it's
0: basically everything that helps you to get all the data into your analytics system so that you, you know, actually can start merging the data and, and stuff like this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. and there's many different ways. I mean, even just the stru- how to structure the data is a topic that could be, you know, discussed at length for forever. Yeah. But the essence of data management, I think, is to care for, for the business, the way I, I pitch it to the business is, data management is about caring for relationships, because the whole point of a business is to make up some brands and build some products to deliver or services and deliver some form of value to people that pay for it. And so these are people, and that's what we keep forgetting sometimes. That no matter what at what point you look, you inspect the uh, the value chain even if it's inside your company, even if it's between two servers, ultimately, there's a, always going to be a human being um, because otherwise, you know, what's the point? Yeah. You know, yeah. We're here, we, we're doing stuff for, for people. So the HR department that hires a new, a new person and they want to onboard them. The um, sales guy or girl that goes out and meets a new client and they need accurate information to compare the product to their competition. Or the CEO that wants to decide, you know, whether it's a good idea to allocate the next million dollars on a SAP system as opposed to an equivalent. Those are all really practical questions. And there are many, many that every business face in every department. But what I think is crucial in, in this process of managing and caring for relationships is to look at the business at the level of the data. And again, we're not used to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Systems evolved so much in the last thirty, even just twenty years. I mean, Snowflake wasn't a thing five years ago. Yeah, Google Gmail wasn't a thing, you know, twenty years ago, 10 15 years ago. What well, I don't remember exactly, but you know, we're talking about two decades where yeah. things exploded from the technology perspective. And so now we have all this flexibility. We can bring new tools anytime at will, everything is software as a service. So you don't have to commit for too too much money. You just trial it. If you like it, you stick to it for six months, then inevitably a new tool comes along, it's better. So you decide to try that tool and you migrate into that tool. And every department does the same thing. So we end up with a huge fragmentation of the data layer. Mm -hmm. So this is an immense waste of money, ultimately for the company because it hinders the very principle of any information and communication system, which is information must flow. If it doesn't flow, we have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an interesting piece in it because the
0: different systems, you know, the people working on the systems, they primarily have their day-to-day task in it. Yeah. So for example, they need to, just manage their appointments or whatsoever, or they need just to capture their notes, or they just need to get some money from the bank account to the customer and, or to the, you know, you know just get some money rolling. And so every function has a different kind of objective to do something. And for them, the data that they collect throughout is more kind of a byproduct. Yeah. Yes. Whereas for the data science people, for the analytics people, and potentially also for, you know, the CEO and the people that hire up that want to make decisions based on that, for them, the data is not a byproduct. For them, that is really, really important. So there is this you know, competing priorities. And sometimes for some people, it's not even competing. They they actually don't see the other side. 100%. Yeah. All they see is, I use this software for X, Y, and Z. I actually never cared about that. It also collects data.
1: Yeah. How do you approach that kind of conflict? It's an excellent question. I think is ultimately a communication problem. I think we need to spend a lot of time on the storytelling side. Essentially, this is one of the hardest things to do, right? Of all the problems that you can think of that involve people, changing behavior Mm -hmm. is really, really hard. It takes time. It takes good leadership. It takes management, both leadership and management. And it takes extraordinary communication and, and storytelling because everyone understands in a different way. So the first effort should be How do we craft a communication style? How do we build a narrative that resonates with everyone? And Mm -hmm. it's not straightforward, but it isn't impossible either because we are all human beings and we understand emotions really well. And so I'm a big believer that if we find a way to encode the message that we want to send through this channel by leveraging emotions, Many people, most people will understand uh, not just at the cognitive level, but at the actual level. They will actually get it. They will feel every time they're in front of an Excel spreadsheet and they're copy pasting really quickly, cutting a corner, will just get back that email, or touch it and go. They will feel, oh, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. At least I'm aware. Yeah. Then if you're forced to do it, it's okay. But at least recognizing that what you're doing is not healthy for, for you? Because a quick, a, cu- a corner that you cut today for you, you know, it's garbage that someone else will have to deal with down the line and that someone else might be you. Yeah.
0: I think that's a really important thing. This narrative always needs to include something. What's in it for you? Yeah. So it's most famous radio stations will WIFM what's in it for me. (laughs) And this is really important. If the narrative doesn't include that, it will be very, very hard to convince people. And so you need to, one of the things is kind of, you can hear you It's, it's for the good of the greater good. And you contribute to something. Yeah. So you can, Approach to the the purpose of the people, you know. So here, it's good for our community, and it's good for our relationship in this group. You will belong to our group if you do that. Yeah. So that yes. could be a narrative. That could be very very helpful
1: and powerful. I think so too. I think uh, creating this almost a tribe of people inside the organization that resonates with the idea you know i love i love data is one that i've heard in one of the recent conferences in data management there was this company they started printing t-shirts i love data mm-hmm. so the love was the emotional trigger and 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 they but it wasn't just about the t-shirt right the t-shirt was the symbol of yep. of of the vision that the company was trying to was trying to um, communicate so they had workshops they had focus groups they had they use the internal communication channel for the companies was well, the same medium that was used to give updates like this person has been hired, this person moved to a different role, the same channel that everybody received. They used it to tell the stories. They used videos and audio. They rewarded the behavior of people that were showing that they cared about data quality and data governance. And instead of punishing those that didn't, they simply rewarded those that did. And so you yeah. find these people that are attracted by, yeah, I want to be rewarded too, you know. Tell yeah. me what, yeah. what can I yeah. do? Yeah. 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 You wanna then you
0: wanna belong to this group. Yes. You wanna belong to those that you know stand out and and, and that is much better dynamics than punishing the other way. So we talked now quite a lot about data management. We talked about kind of how we can change behavior, what are the problems, you know, and as you said, it's always about people and people problems. You have now this
1: data project where people can learn more about this. Yeah, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, so I think LinkedIn, if you want to get in touch, is the best medium. But yeah. I, the website datafoundations.com.au uh, slash the data project is is the place where every new app is released. I try to add transcripts as well because I got some feedback that there's people that really don't like listening. They would like reading. So I'm trying to uh, have that backup, but really it's a best experience with headphones going for a walk. If you can, if it's not co- too cold, that's, that's my preferred way. <laughs> but yeah, so datafoundations.com.au is, is the place and then it's available on Spotify, Google, Podcast, any any podcatcher, any app should have it. Awesome. Yeah, very, very good. And you'll find all these
0: links in the show notes as well. So, great. Right. And, you know, we found ourselves on LinkedIn. So, exactly. um, if you're not yet on LinkedIn, I can highly encourage you to actually move there and yeah connect with both of
1: us yes and if i can share just one single last tip i learned a lot in the last few months that linkedin is actually a very inclusive community Uh, especially after the pandemic i think something happened in the brains of people i find a lot of encouragement a lot of ideas so give it a shot awesome very good thanks so much thanks alexander thanks for having me This show was
0: created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the links that we are mentioning in this episode and lots of more content to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.